Thanks, Daniel. <clears throat> First reading this evening is found on page 250 and is Judges chapter 8. Judges chapter 8, page 250. Now, the Ephraimites asked Gideon, Why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. But he answered them, What have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Abiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalhuma, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them. But they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. Now Zeba and Zalmanah were in Cargo with a force of about 15,000 men all that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads, east of Nobar and Jokbahar, and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmunna, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Heres. He caught a young man of Zuccoth and questioned him, and the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Zuccoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Zuccoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sekoth the lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the town. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmanna, What kind of men did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. 
As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zebar and Zalmanna said, come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites, that is the Midianites, to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give you them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, not counting the ornaments, the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he played in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. <clears throat> Jeroboam, that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, whom he named Abimelech. Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Bereth as their god and did not remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. We continue our reading in Judges chapter 9, and that's page 251 in the Church Bible. Judges chapter 9, page 251. Abimelech, son of Jeroboam, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you? to have all 70 of Jeroboam's sons rule over you, or just one man. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shekels of silver from the temple of Baal Berith, 
and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem, so that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and humans are honoured, to hold sway over the trees? Next, the trees said to the fig tree, Come and be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans, to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thorn bush, Come and be our king. The thorn bush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honourably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jarabal and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he is related to you. So, have you acted honourably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy, and may you be his too. But if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Belmillah, and let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech 
and on the citizens of Shechem who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by. And this was reported to Abimelech. Now Gaal, son of Ebed, moved with his clan into Shechem and its citizens put their confidence in him. After they had gone out into the fields and gathered the grapes and trodden them, they held a festival in the temple of their god. While they were eating and drinking, they cursed Abimelech. Then Gaal, son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and why should we Shechemites be subject to him? Isn't he Jeroboam's son, and Zebal his deputy? Serve the family of Hamor, Shechem's father. Why should we serve Abimelech? If only this people were under my command, then I would get rid of him. I would say to Abimelech, call out your whole army. When Zebal, the governor of the city, heard what Gal, son of Ebed, said, he was very angry. Undercover, he sent messages to Abimelech, saying, Gal, son of Ebed, and his clan have come to Shechem and are stirring up the city against you. Now then, during the night, you and your men should come and lie in wait in the fields. In the morning at sunrise, advance against the city. When Gaal and his men come out against you, seize the opportunity to attack them. So Abimelech and all his troops set out by night and took up concealed positions near Shechem in four companies. Now, Gaal, son of Ebed, had gone out and was standing at the entrance of the city gate, just as Abimelech and his troops came out from their hiding place. When Gaal saw them, he said to Zebal, Look, people are coming down from the tops of the mountains. Zebal replied, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. But Gaal spoke up again, Look, People are coming down from the central hill, and a company is coming from the direction of the diviner's tree. Then Zebal said to him, Where is your big talk now, you who said, Who is Abimelech that we should be subject to him? Aren't these the men you ridiculed? Go out and fight them. So Gaal led out the citizens of Shechem and fought Abimelech. Abimelech chased him all the way to the entrance of the gate, and many were killed as they fled. Then Abimelech stayed in a rumour, and Zebal drove Gaal and his clan out of Shechem. The next day, the people of Shechem went out to the fields, and this was reported to Abimelech. So he took his men, divided them into three companies, and set an ambush in the fields. When he saw the people coming out of the city, he rose to attack them. Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate. Then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down. All that day, Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing this, the citizens in the Tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Alberith, 
When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went out, went out Mount Zalman. He took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him, Quick, do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the Tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through, and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. Thus, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them. Good evening. It's great to see you, Andrew and Eleanor. Thank you so much for reading our passage. Folks, we've had a big reading, so if you're able to, could you please stand up and just stretch your legs just to get the blood flowing? Um, otherwise, it's very easy to... Your eyes, eyelids stop feeling heavy. All right, feel free to take a seat again. Thank you. Let me, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, thank you so much for this passage. It is a big passage, and so we pray for your help. We pray you'd help us to track and follow what is going on. Uh, help me to speak clearly and faithfully, and um, give us uh, open, receptive hearts to what you have to say to us. We pray that your Spirit would work in us this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When, um, when Nicola Sturgeon announced on Wednesday... As she was stepping down as Scotland's first minister, she said, Since my very first moments in the job, I have believed a part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. Nicholas Sturgeon's views, um, or she views her resignation at this particular moment in time as a way of serving and I think this indicates something of her views on leadership. It's about serving. And I think many of us would agree with that. Leadership is about serving. This evening, we are thinking about leadership. Now, you might think, wait, isn't the whole book of Judges about leadership? To which the answer is yes. But I think tonight's passage 
it helps, it highlights leadership in a couple of ways in, in which we haven't yet seen in the book. The question we're thinking about tonight is this. What sort of leader do we need? What sort of leader do we need? And the author answers this question by showing us different portraits of leadership. Let's look at our first portrait, good leadership. This is quite a short point because we're looking at verses 1 to 3 in chapter 8. So in these verses, one of Israel's tribes, Ephraim, files a complaint against Gideon for not having invited them to fight against the Midianites. You can see then in verse 1, it says, They challenged Gideon vigorously. They are not impressed. But notice Gideon's response to to their protests. He doesn't ignore them, or he doesn't say, Hey, look, I am the leader of the army. It's my prerogative to to choose who, to decide who, who, who I call and who I don't call. He doesn't do that. He, he listens to them. And then he compliments them, which is hardly an easy thing to do to people who are critical of you. So Gideon credits them and he thanks them for how despite uh, their not being part of the original army to launch the attack on Midian, they've managed to catch Oreb and Zeb, two Midianite leaders. I think we can agree that this is good leadership. Gideon wants to repair, he wants to restore his relationship with the Ephraimites. So he shows interest in them, genuine interest. I think we could call this servant leadership. Leadership where you put the, other, the interest of others first. Sadly, however, Gideon very quickly abandons the style of leadership. How he leads us in, how he leads in the following section is far less exemplary. We now move from good leadership to bad leadership. Have a look at me at verse 4. Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I'm still pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. Gideon and his troops are spent. They're still pursuing the Midianites who are fleeing back to their territory. Having just crossed the Jordan... Gideon and his troops decide to make pit stops in the Israelite towns Sukkoth and Penuel, hoping to be refueled. But there's a problem. Verse 6. But the officials of Sukkoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna in your possession? Why should we give, your, your, give bread to your troops? The officials of Sukkoth and later of Penuel refused to help Gideon, which is clearly a massive setback. Now, I want you to imagine that you were in Gideon's shoes. How would you respond? Here's his response. 
he threatens them with violence upon his return. So he says to Sukkoth in verse 7, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. After Gideon eventually defeats the Midianites and returns with his troops, he brings Zeba and Zalmanah with him. And he says to Sukkoth, and I'm paraphrasing here, Hey guys, remember when I came here last time and um, I asked you to give us some food? And you said, hey, do you already have Zeba and Zalmanah's hands? Oh look, here they are. And what he does afterwards is mortifying. He tortures the 70 leaders of Sukkoth. And then in Penwell, he destroys their tower and kills their men. Without men to fight and a tower, Penwell is now completely vulnerable to attack. It's, defense, it's defenseless. Even worse, families have lost husbands, sons, fathers, brothers. Gideon, who'd, who'd previously shown signs of being a servant leader, has, has sadly turned into this aggressive, self-serving leader. He's on a vengeful rampage, settling scores with fellow Israelites. And I think what makes Gideon's actions here even more startling is his own behavior back in chapter 6, which we learned about last week, where we encountered a man who was full of fear and doubt. God had shown Gideon such an abundance of grace. Yet Gideon is not willing to show even a shred of grace towards these fellow Israelites. Why had the officials of Sukkoth and Penuel refused to help Gideon? Because they were afraid. You see, the Midianites didn't live very far from them. Suppose they were to help Gideon and the Midianites found out. They'd be done for. They didn't help Gideon because they were scared. Even if they do seem a bit sarcastic. Deep down, they were scared. And the right response to sarcasm isn't, probably isn't killing people. And because they were scared, I think you'd expect Gideon, of all people, to be able to relate to sympathize. Gideon's vengeance, though, uh, doesn't stop here. So after he's exacted uh, revenge against Sukkoth and Penuel, he seeks to do the same to Zeba and Zalmanah. Have a look at verse 18. Then he asked Zeba and Zalmanah, What kind of men did you kill at table? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those who are my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jetha, his eldest son, he said, kill them. But Jetha did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. 
who does Gideon ask to kill Zeba and Zalmanah? His son, Jephthah. The passage highlights for us how Jephthah is only a boy. Gideon wants his son, who's probably not yet even a teenager, to kill. Friends, this isn't good leadership, and it's certainly not good parenting. Gideon's desire for justice, for the killing of his brothers, hey, look, that, that is somewhat understandable. But encouraging his little boy to kill, well, that definitely isn't. Thankfully, the boy doesn't kill because he's too scared. He's a bit like his dad was back in the day. So Gideon does it. Folks, what are we learning here? We're learning that Gideon's mission has, become, has now become more about personal vengeance than about justice. It seems like the power is starting to go to his head a bit. And as we read on, I wonder what you make of Gideon. What are we, what are we to make of him? So let's read from verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will, will rule over you. What do you think of Gideon's response? It seems quite humble and pious, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe Gideon's turned a corner here. He says, I, I don't want to be the king. Let God be the king. That's, that's an excellent answer, isn't it? Here's the thing, though. I think the author wants us to notice how Gideon's actions don't quite match up with his words. So immediately after saying that he won't be king, Gideon asks the people to offer him gold. Now, do you know who would usually make that sort of request? Kings. And, and when the people accept to offer the gold... It's a sign of their submission, that they're behaving as though they're Gideon's vassals. And then what does Gideon do with the gold? He creates a golden ephod. The ephod was a thing that the, the priests used to wear. Because kings would often sponsor cult worship, Again, Gideon's behavior here is rather king-like. As a brief but not unimportant side note, Gideon shouldn't even be creating this ephod statue thing. What, is, what do the Ten Commandments say? Well, they, they strictly prohibit the creation of any images for worship. So it's little wonder that the people then end up committing idolatry because of this golden ephod. Now, here are two more ways in which Gideon is behaving like a king. First, verse 29 tells us that he had many wives. 
Marrying loads of women? Classic, classic king move. Second, and I think this is the clincher. He names his son Abimelech, which literally means my father is king. Probably not the best name to give to your son if you're trying to convince people that you're not the king. Briefly, um, before we move on to our next point, what are we meant to make of Gideon? So so chapter 8 hasn't really painted a great picture of him. Although he started off as as a servant leader, by the end, he's more of a self-serving leader. I think that's a question worth raising because in the New Testament, uh, it speaks well of Gideon. So I won't answer that, that question just yet, but I thought I'd raise it. We will come back to it later. So we've considered good leadership and we've considered bad leadership. The leadership we're about to encounter now in chapter 9, well, it is atrocious. It's far worse than Gideon's. This is abysmal leadership. Remember Abimelech, whose name means, my dad's the king. After his father Gideon dies, he decides that he no longer wants to be known merely as the son of the king. He wants to be the king. So here's what he does. He asks the people of the town of Shechem where he's from if they'd rather have him rule over them or all his 70 brothers rule over them. And they say, we'd rather have you rule over us. So what does he do? Look at verse 5, chapter 9, verse 5. He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and on one stone murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jerobal. That's another name for Gideon. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jerobal, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. While Gideon killed men for killing his brothers, his son Abimelech kills his own brothers. He kills his own flesh and blood. This man is power hungry, and he will stop at nothing to be king. In our passage, we've seen servant leadership, self-serving Leadership, and now, what is this? This is gory, gruesome, power-grabbing leadership. Abimelech hires mercenaries to, to line his brothers up and kill them one by one by crushing them against a rock. Folks, the author is showing us, look, Israel here is spiraling out of control. They are neck deep in idolatry. We get hints of that, for example, in, in verse 6. Uh, where do they crown Abimelech king? It's beside a great tree by a pillar. 
That's probably a, a place of idol worship. Also, after Gideon died, it says that they made a covenant with Baal, which means they made Baal worship their official religion. This is how bad things have got for Israel. Baal worship is now the official religion. And they've got this tyrannical brute for a king. But then Jotham enters the scene. He's one of Abimelech's half-brothers who somehow managed to escape the fratricide. In verses 7 to 20, he prophesies to Israel from the top of Mount Gerizim, essentially condemning them for choosing Abimelech as their king. And he compares relying on Abimelech as king to relying on a thorn bush for shade. Now, folks, you would never go to a thorn bush for shade. They are viciously prickly, and they're really low to the ground. If you try to get under that thing for shade, it's going to hurt you. Clearly, a thorn bush is a terrible place to go to for shade. Similarly, Abimelech is a terrible person to go to for leadership. At the end of his his prophecy, Jotham says that the citizens of Shechem and Abimelech, they will turn on each other. And that is exactly what happens. As the people revolt against Abimelech, he goes on a killing spree. He sends mercenaries to kill people in the city, and he sends them to kill them in the fields. And later, when he finds people who'd managed to escape hiding in a tower, he sets it on fire, killing about a thousand. The people turned on Abimelech, and Abimelech turned on them, just as Jotham had prophesied. Abimelech then moves on from the town of Shechem, where he was ruling, to another town called Tebes, which he attacks. Now, we know very little about this town and why exactly Abimelech chooses to besiege it, apart from the fact that he is unhinged. Now, in some ways, what what happened in Shechem is quite similar to, to what happens here in Tebez. But there are a couple of key differences. Try and spot them as we read. Have a look at verse 50. Next, Abimelech went to Tebez and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower, to which all the men and women, all the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it. But as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly, he called to his armor bearer, draw your sword and kill me, so that they can't say, a woman killed him. 
So his servant ran him through, and he died. Just as in Shechem, the people in Tebez flee to their local tower for safety. And just as in Shechem, Abimelech plans to set it alight. But this time, his plan backfires. A woman drops a large stone on his head, fatally wounding him. There's a sense of poetic justice here, isn't there? The man who'd killed others on a rock is himself brought down with a rock. And although the woman drops the rock on his head, ultimately, it is God who has brought down this power-grabbing, bloodthirsty tyrant. And the author seeks to make that very clear for us. So earlier in verse 23, it said, God, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. And then after Abimelech's death, in verse 56, the author says, Thus, God, God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. Their wickedness being their choosing Abimelech to be their king and their idolatry. My friends, there is a huge lesson, lesson here for the Israelites. So back in Deuteronomy 17, God had said to Israel, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. What are we learning from this passage, from our passage the consequences of Israel appointing a king of their choosing rather than God's choosing. You see, when, when someone is appointed king who was not chosen by God, it inevitably ends in tears, both for the king and for the people. This is the warning to Israel. Do not hastily appoint a king. You need a king who's been chosen by God. And this brings us to a couple of ways in which this passage is relevant to us today. Firstly, we also, like Israel, we need a king who's chosen by God. In Mark chapter 9 in the New Testament, God says of Jesus, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Friends, when, when God says that Jesus is his son, he's revealing that Jesus is his chosen king. How are we responding to this king? This is the king that God wants us to follow. He has made it extremely clear. This is the king whom, if we follow, 
it will never end in tears for us, unless it's tears of joy. You see, this king is not a power grabber, and this king is not self-serving. In fact, he's the opposite of a self-serving king. He is a servant king. Which leads us to our second key takeaway. See, not only do we need a king who's chosen by God, we also need a king who's a servant. And that is precisely the king whom God chooses for us. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the epitome of a servant leader. He's the servant leader par excellence. He serves even to the point of laying down his life to save those under his rule. You see, Abimelech, his kingship motivated him to kill others. But Jesus' kingship motivates him to give up his life for others. He's the king I want to serve. Isn't Jesus the king you want to serve? Earlier, I mentioned Gideon and how he'd been a mixed leader. At the end, he didn't seem like a great leader. And for this reason, I think when we read about him in in Hebrews, it comes as a bit of a surprise that he's painted in a positive light. We might even think, wait a minute, did did the author of Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, was he just unaware or oblivious to uh, Gideon's flaws? Of course he wasn't. The book of Judges portrays him warts and all. And Hebrews 11 never suggests that Gideon was a flawless individual. Rather, I think it's precisely because of his flaws that he's mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame. You see, Hebrews 11, it commends several of the judges for their faith. But it's not, it's not the judges with great track records like Othniel and Ehud. You can look it up later. It's not. The ones that are commended are the ones with checkered histories like Gideon and Samson. And here's why that's relevant. I think in some ways we're a lot like Gideon. We have checkered histories. We, we don't have perfect moral track records. At least that is if we're honest with ourselves. Yet, like Gideon, we too can be commended by God. We can be commended by him for our faith. Namely, our faith in his son, the king who died to save us. 
Because of his death, our slates can be wiped clean. It's because of him. It's not because we're great. We're not great. He is great. Because he dies to save us. He gets the glory. A bit like how he uses 300 Israelites to beat 135,000 Midianites. He gets the glory. When he wipes our slates clean, he gets the glory. When he does that through his son. Do you have faith in this king? Are you relying on him? If you are wonderfully, he commends you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have such a good king for us. Thank you for showing us that we need a king of your choosing, not of our own. And forgive us for the times when, um, yeah, we do put our hopes in earthly kings or earthly things. Remind us and keep reminding us, we pray, that we, we remember just how wonderful Jesus is your chosen king is. He is a servant. He's gentle and humble in heart. We praise you for him. And we pray that we would rejoice in him this evening and this week. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.